This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Boy, I didn't know there were 19 different intelligence agencies in the U.S. Of course, there's the CIA, there's the FBI, there's the DIA, which is the Defense Intelligence Agency. But there's also stuff like the Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which takes data from space. And then I didn't know how much intelligence is really done by private companies now. And this is a whole new industry. It kind of makes you want to be an entrepreneur in this industry. But... Amy Ziegert, who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute of Stanford, she wrote the book on the state of the universe in intelligence right now. It's called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. And it's the book to read and listen about if you want to learn more about this. So I'm glad she's joining me for the podcast. I've always been curious, why is there a CIA, an FBI, an NSA, a DIA, the Coast Guard, <laughs> and all these other like weird intelligence agencies? There's now an intelligence agency, the Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which we'll find out about in a second. But I have with me Amy Ziegert, who uh, is a, are you, would you say you're a fellow at the Hoover Institute? Yeah, I'm a yes, senior, senior fellow. fellow at the Hoover Institution at, at Stanford. And she just wrote Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. And so, Amy, why'd you write this book? Well, Are I you spying on the spies? <laughs> I guess that's one way of putting it. I wrote it for two reasons. One was I wanted to have a book for my students that was sort of Intelligence 101, the question you, you opened with. Why do we have all these agencies? What do they do? Why do presidents use covert action even when they say they don't want to? And the second reason I wrote this book is I wanted to look at technology, and I call it the Intelligence 2.0 mission of the book. How are emerging technologies like AI and commercial satellites really transforming how our intelligence agencies do what they do and what needs to be done to reform them? So two goals. Yeah, and it seems like you made me think about, what well, reading this book made me think about spying and intelligence agencies in a different way. So it seems like there's three components worthy of being interested in. One is, what is intelligence? Like, what is it? what does it mean to gather information that might, may or may not be available about another country or person or company or whatever? So that's intelligence gathering. Then there's, as you just mentioned, there's covert actions. Somebody in a policy field, probably not at an intelligence agency, uses an intelligence agency to take action in another country, like overthrow this government or whatever. That's an extreme case. But do something covert. And then the third thing is, which has been a recent thing, is technology, like using satellite data, using social media, using AI, using cyber attacks and cybersecurity and stuff like that. So it feels like there's these, these three different legs that this chair of intelligence sits on. Absolutely. And so, you know, you've hit on a really important distinction, which is there's the part of intelligence that's about gathering information. So in its most simple form, intelligence is information that gives policymakers an advantage, right? Any kind of advantage over our adversaries, right? So we know more, faster, better about what may happen. So we can seize the, you know, the advantage. But then there's a part of the intelligence community that's trying to change outcomes, and that's through covert action. 
So the CIA is authorized by the by the president, has to be authorized by the president to undertake covert action. But here's the interesting thing. You mentioned regime change or coups, right? Every covert action has an overt counterpart. So when it's a covert action and we're trying to change a government, it's called it's called a coup. When it's overt, it's called a war. So covert action isn't some special bag of dirty tricks that the CIA does that nobody else does. Everything that, that what makes it covert is that the U.S. doesn't officially acknowledge its responsibility behind it. But I guess they don't officially acknowledge their responsibility because it's somehow a little more evil. I'm not making a judgment, but like, why would they say it? Why would they make something covert, for instance? Uh, it's a great question. And it turns out there are real efficacy reasons why they do it. So I'll give you a couple of examples. We armed the Afghan Mujahideen after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. It was a covert action. Now, the Soviets knew we were arming the Afghan Mujahideen, and we knew that the Soviets knew. So why do we all pretend that it was secret? Because we didn't want an overt Cold War, a Cold War to turn hot, right? So part of the reason why we claim not to have official involvement is to keep things from escalating. Because if the Soviets acknowledged that we were supporting the Afghan Mujahideen, they would have been forced into a corner to maybe escalate or do something more significant. Second reason we did it, Third parties often want us to keep it quiet so they help us, so they don't get retaliation by an opponent. So in this case, there were the Pakistanis that helped us in Afghanistan and some other countries, and they didn't want the world to know that they were helping us. And so it helps other countries help the United States by keeping it quiet. And I guess also there might be some situations where we're on both sides of the action. That's possible too, right? So we don't know what's going to happen. And so there's some benefit into, you know, into, into playing both sides. Yeah, maybe for either political reasons or maybe even financial reasons. Like uh, during the Iran-Iraq war, were we on both sides a little bit in the 80s? Uh, not so much uh, on both sides, but we were mostly right in support of the Iraqis over the Iranians in the Iran-Iraq war. It's interesting, you know, yesterday's friends can be tomorrow's enemies. And you addressed this also in the book, like, and we'll we'll, we'll get into this, but you know, and, and this calls into question the whole function of intelligence agencies. How often do we make major moves that are mistakes? And you bring up the example of, you know, in, in 1998, we were presented with evidence that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and later realized it was a mistake. Uh, and obviously, we, you know, somehow or other, we we didn't do things right when we were uh, arming the Mujahideen, which became the Taliban and bin Laden and, and caused 9-11 ultimately, even though we were originally helping them. So somehow a lot of these actions kind of turn, they start with, let's call them good intentions or at least perceived good intentions, but they, don't, they often don't end up that way. Well, part of it, let's take the Afghan Mujahideen, for example, part of it is history works in mysterious ways. So it's hard to anticipate that arming the Mujahideen would end up morphing into Al-Qaeda and attacking the homeland. So if you rewound the tape, would we have armed the Mujahideen again? Probably yes, because at the time it was a superpower conflict with the Soviet Union. But history has a way of playing out in unintended ways. And there's blowback to some intelligence for sure. But other kinds of failures, you know, analysis failures like Iraqi WMD, um, like Pearl Harbor, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, really come from often analysis failures. And you know, when I've done work on the intelligence community for a long time, and I'm always talking about failure, and I have to say that folks on the inside say, when are you ever gonna talk about our successes? And what I say to them is, you know, your failures are public, 
but your successes you don't often talk about. So we really don't know the, the sort of score sheet about what the CIA and other agencies got right and what they got wrong. Well, well, okay. Let's 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 talk about this. What are some successes that we do know about, or that you know about? Well, I think the one that the public knows the most about and is most recent is the hunt for Osama bin Laden, right? A ten-year manhunt to find a guy who was doing everything he could to hide. It's actually a remarkable story. And in order to find him, intelligence officials had to throw out all the assumptions they had about how he was hiding, which is how he had always hidden in the past. So bin Laden threw out the rule book of how he used to hide. He hid in a city, not in a rural area. He hid without lots of security. He used to have lots of security. He hid with his family members. He never did that before. And so to actually find this guy after 10 years of hunting him was a remarkable intelligence success. Well, you know, and it's interesting because I had um, uh, several years ago, I had on a former CIA or or some three-letter agency uh, agent or spy or whatever you call it on the podcast. And he wasn't involved at all in the bin Laden operation. And he wasn't in, with any agency at, at the moment, or so he said. But he was of the opinion that because the rule book had been, because it was so obvious that the rule book had been thrown out and the way bin Laden was hiding himself. And he, he was also on the living on the third floor of this building and, or the second, you know, he, he didn't have easy exits just in case there was an emergency. He kind of thought at, that the real story and this, I know intelligence agency stories border always on conspiracy stories. And I, I don't want to go that d direction necessarily, but he thought that maybe bin Laden was actually a prisoner and they decided that his use as a prisoner was no, no longer needed and did this operation as a way of cleaning it up. Do you, do you, do you think this has any credibility? No, okay. no, I don't think so at all. I mean, based on what's been publicly released and there's a lot that's been declassified related to this operation, no way. There's no way the U.S. intelligence community kept him as a prisoner instead of getting him and use and and you know he had a treasure trove of information when the SEAL team went in there uh, that was mined for its intelligence value. There is no way that um, that they would have kept him there and not exploited the intelligence value and brought him to justice after 9/11. None. Do you, why, why do you think they didn't try to bring him to justice, like arrest him and bring him in? Because he, his intelligence value probably was even greater if we, you know imprisoned him somewhere. Look, the operation from what we know wasn't an, wasn't a killing operation. It was, let's try to bring him in. I mean, you know, our SEAL team members were fired on when they, when they went into the compound. And so it all went down fast and they, and they killed him in the course of, of the raid, but it wasn't a, a foregone conclusion at all. Okay. And then, you know, after 9-11, I'd like to think, and I heard just different rumors on this, but I'd like to think that intelligence agencies were very active in stopping the next five 9-11s for all we know. Do, do you know of any, do you know if that is true? Well, you know, I can, I can talk about the things that have been publicly reported. So, you know, I have to be careful here, but, you know, we know in 2006, there was the transatlantic bombing plot. Remind, you know how, when you go to the airport, you have to put all of your toiletries in those little bottles and the little bags yeah. that, that came from that plot, which was that's, that's how the explosives were going to be put on board airplanes coming from Europe to the United States. And so intelligence actually prevented that plot from materializing. And that was definitely a, a major victory after 9-11. So that's one that sort of immediately comes to mind. I think another, just to harp on successes for a minute, you know, successes are often non-events, right? Events that don't happen. Right. Uh, and one was, you know, Gaddafi 
actually gave up his nuclear weapons program. He gave it up, right? He was developing nuclear weapons and he gave it up. And how did he give it up? The CIA played a huge role in developing the intelligence about what he had and actually working with uh, the government to negotiate with him to give up his WMD program. This is very interesting because I have a bunch of naive questions that I've always been curious about that I'd like to ask and then get into kind of the deeper content in the book. But, But some of these questions might segue into that as well. And the second question will be related to Gaddafi. The first one is, I had a friend who worked for the CIA for a while and he rose up and rose up and rose up. And then at one point they asked him, Hey, we want to send you now on an international operation and you're going to take on an identity. You won't be able to talk to your family for at least five years. Uh, are you okay with that? And so he had to leave the agency cause he wasn't okay with that. But does that, does that sort of thing happen? I mean, it, I trust my friend, like it definitely happened to him. But is that a frequent thing? Like, what is that all about? How are you not supposed to talk to your family? <laughs> well, so the so the agency really does leave some discretion to intelligence officers about when they tell their kids and their spouses what they do. So let me back up. There are two parts, really two major parts of the CIA. One is the Directorate of Intelligence, which is analysts, right? So these are these are this is not Jack Ryan going into the field, right, with a gun. These are actually that's what I want to do. <laughs> So, so these are these are the the people who are putting the pieces together. And then the other side of the agency is the Directorate of Operations, and those are the folks that are engaged in covert action, that are engaged in paramilitary activities, and that are engaged in recruiting human assets on the ground to betray their country's secrets to help the United States. So they're not spies; they recruit spies. So the spies are the foreigners; they're the intelligence officers that run those spies and meet with them to find out what they know. Um, So when you're talking about going undercover and not telling your family, that's a small subset of intelligence officers that work in different intelligence agencies. And the extent to which they can tell or not tell their families is really driven by the mission. And so one of the things I did in this book is I asked a bunch of folks inside the intelligence community questions like, how did your kids react when you told them what you did? When, how, what made you decide to tell? How old were they? Questions that I think most people actually really want to know. And the answers I got were kind of all over the place. Um, so I had one intelligence officer who told me that he had death threats against his family when he was posted overseas. He was a case officer. He was you know, recruiting people in a foreign country. And he had to tell his little kids how to look on the street to notice whether anything was different today. Was the guy on the street corner selling popsicles the same guy that was on the street corner before? Like they had to learn how to keep themselves safe because of his job. That was a pretty powerful story. What, what, was there ever a situation where things really were different and they had to do something? Not that he told me. So in this case, I think the threat passed and he moved, you know, he moved assignments and everything was fine. Um, but he had to tell his kids at a pretty young age what he really did. And his oldest son, who he then talked to after we did this interview, said, yeah, I remember thinking what you did was cool. <laughs> I think that's why I would want to tell everybody, but I guess that's probably why they would never <laughs> that, recruit me. That would make you bad at your job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so like in this case with my, my friend, again, he wouldn't tell me what he was doing or what he was asked to do other than that. That was the reason he left was that he, he, he felt in order to rise further, he had to take this this role and he didn't want to um, not have to see his family for, for so long, his, in particular his parents. So he wasn't married at the time, but uh, what, what type of thing would, would, would he be sent abroad to do? 
that, that it would be so secret if he couldn't talk to his family for that, that amount of time? I mean, it really varies. And when you think about some of the most secretive sort of assignments that, that you can imagine, it's what's called non-official cover. So you're going, you know, pretending to be someone, you have a cover where you're not officially working for the U.S. government. So a lot of intelligence officials are working out of U.S. embassies and they have official cover, which is to say they work for the Department of Agriculture or some other government agency. Non-official cover means you really have a different background and you're not protected by diplomatic immunity either. Right. So if you're an intelligence officer and let's say you're in a spy versus spy game on the ground in Moscow and the Russians find out about something you're doing, you get deported. Right. You get kicked out of the country that this is how this game works. Right. How, how it worked in the Cold War. It's how it works. Now you get deported. But if you're under non-official cover, the stakes are much higher. And if you get caught, there may not be anything that the government can do to help you. So those tend to be very sort of deep cover assignments uh, that require more secrecy. But in general, if you have a security clearance, you can't tell your significant other what you're doing in, in your day job. If they say, how was work today, honey? You just say, fine. Right? You can't right. you can't reveal what you're doing because you took an oath of office that if you do, uh, you're going to reveal secrets that could hurt national security. I mean, I guess what we do know is when other countries spy on us and we catch them, we sort of get a little window into how these other intelligence agencies work. And, you know, there's the famous case, and you mentioned this, of, of Jonathan Pollard, who was working for Israel, which is an ally of us, but he was also spying on us. But you also mentioned other countries like France, uh, have, have they've been caught spying on us. Like, what? why would France spy on us, and what, what did they get from us? <laughs> so almost all countries spy on each other. So the number of countries that actually have a, you know, a handshake agreement that they're actually not going to spy on each other is very, very small. And the U.S., it's really, we have a very strong working relationship with what's called the Five Eyes. It's a great phrase. It's the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. So we work very closely together with those countries' intelligence services. But for everybody else, spying is fair game. What can they get from us? They want to understand what U.S. policy is going to be toward, imagine, um, what is President Biden thinking about what the U.S. will do if Russia invades Ukraine, right? What is likely action that we could take if China moves on Taiwan or if Iran develops a nuclear weapon? So our allies want to know what the U.S. government is likely to do or what our interests are likely to be or what the policy debates are. And we want to know what they're thinking, too, before an international negotiation or on a big issue. So what are the, the layers of that? Like, for instance, the first layer might just be, hey, someone in Paris reads our newspapers every day and reads some blogs from ex-government people and then collects all this information and forms an opinion and submits it to his boss. So let's say that's layer one. How, what are other layers and how deep do the layers go? Well, so this world that you just described is changing pretty dramatically thanks to technology. So it used to be that secrets were sort of the foundational layer, and then you'd sprinkle that other stuff on top. And that other stuff would be news reports, things that are publicly available, what people call open source intelligence. It used to be the add-on, the icing on the top. Now it's being reversed because if you think about what's publicly available today that anyone can get their hands on, right? So, you know, we talked about the bin Laden operation. You know, the Pakistani military didn't see U.S. forces coming in that operation, but a local guy did. He heard strange noises outside his bedroom window and he live tweeted the entire bin Laden operation. 
So think about what you can get just by following Twitter that you couldn't get 10 or 20 years ago. So well, and now, even more now, because like, like the kind of satellite imagery you get from Google satellite, for instance, is probably what the US, the quality of the US government was getting 10 or 15 years ago now is for the consumer. Absolutely. And it's cheap and sometimes free. And so anybody can get this kind of information. So this kind of open source intelligence is now becoming foundational to thinking about how we how we get insight about threats. That's completely different than it was sort of 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Right. So so what would be like the next layer? Would you try to go to embassy parties and pretend you're with your the French embassy and just kind of get drunk with people working for the White House and, <laughs> and see what happens? Well, that's one strategy. <laughs> There's certainly That's certainly part of it. So I think intelligence folks think about, they're called ints or um, uh, intelligence disciplines. And intelligence works best when they all come together. So you don't want to rely on just one. So there are human sources that might get drunk at embassy cocktail parties and try to pry secrets out of their uh, Russian counterparts, for example. So there's human intelligence on the ground, but there's also signals intelligence. So foreign intercepts of phone calls, right? Or emails um, that are transiting abroad. And I mentioned the word foreign because many Americans mistakenly believe the NSA is eavesdropping on their phone calls with grandma. They are not doing that. They, they train their eavesdropping abroad. So there's signals intelligence. There's intelligence that you can get from satellites, not just what you see, but um, radio frequency emissions that can enable you to detect ships at sea that have turned their transponders off because their radar and their radio equipment actually gives them away. We can detect that with satellites and there are F transmissions from space. So there's that kind of intelligence too. And then there's all the open source intelligence, like what you're posting on social media, selfies and all sorts of data that's just out there for anybody to use. So when you get into kind of um, intercepting, uh, let's say foreign conversations, like, how does that work? So let's say someone wanted to intercept, you know, uh, the phone conversation of someone working for Biden, who's making, making a call, what would they do? Well, I don't know technically what they would do because our communication systems are pretty secure uh, and we have a lot of people working hard to keep them that way. It's why, you know, you're not allowed just to bring your cell phone into the White House or your cell phone into the CIA. They make you leave it at the door, right? Or anything, anything that's sort of a connected device like your Fitbit can't take inside. So very, that's counterintelligence, right? Preventing the other guys from penetrating your stuff. Um, but what you want to do is not just intercept the conversation because imagine someone's intercepting our conversation right now they might get the words that we're saying to each other, but they don't know the context in which we're saying them. So they, they would need to know much more about who are you? Who am I? What are we talking about? What is this book? What's your interest in interviewing me? They need that context to be able to calibrate the conversation that they've just eavesdropped on. So it's not enough just to get the so-called smoking gun uh, communication, the recording of somebody. It takes a lot more digging and a lot more analysis to understand, well, what does it mean? Right. So, but let's say, you know, let's say I'm like, I'm, I'm the Russian intelligence agency and I know somebody, uh, has regular meetings with people close to Biden about the Ukraine. So I want to get his conversations and let's say he uses his cell phone at home and I pick up these conversations, you know, obviously this is, this is now we're sort of not just bordering on illegally. I'm going to do an illegal activity. I'm going to get this guy's phone conversation. Is it even possible to do, or what What do they do to kind of really dig in and, and you, get secrets? Who, who do you mean by they? Do you mean a foreign intelligence service? Yeah, a foreign intelligence agency. 
Well, intelligent- by, by, and by that, I mean also us in a foreign area. It's just here I understand the context better because it's about Biden, how he'd respond to the Ukraine. So let's say I'm the sure. Russia intelligence agency. So intelligence agencies don't care about violating the laws of the countries that they're operating in. So for the Russians, they don't care about breaking U.S. law. They don't want to get caught but they're not worried about breaking the law. And the same thing, U.S. intelligence agencies operating abroad are following U.S. law, but they may be violating the laws of the countries where they're operating. And that's considered fair game in the world of espionage. So so that's sort of the underlying sort of rules of the road of how they operate. But at some, uh, like at that foundational layer where it's kind of this open source intelligence, there's no laws being broken. And you can get pretty far with that. But at some point you have to like go over the line and start intercepting stuff illegally in that country. And I'm just curious, how much does that happen? Like, does the White House have nonstop radio waves hitting it from from foreign countries trying to hear what's going on? Oh, well, you know, it's been publicly reported that the Pentagon and other um, US national security agencies have millions of attempted cyber intrusions a day, right? Mm. It's constantly, when you think about what's available in cyberspace, and we we keep talking about like, what does war look like? We are at war in cyberspace. It is occurring every day. Adversaries are trying to penetrate American systems every day. We just don't hear about it in the news all the time. And to what extent do they succeed or what percentage succeeds? Well, too much succeeds, right? So we, you saw solar winds, which was in the news in December. This is the Russian, attributed to Russia, uh, hack that, um, put malware into the SolarWinds updates, which affected thousands of companies in at least nine US government agencies that we know of. And the one of the scary parts about SolarWinds, there are many scary things about SolarWinds, but number one, it wasn't detected for a long time, right? So often it's like that nightmare movie where the bad guy is inside the house the whole time, but you didn't know it. That's what's happening in cyberspace. And it was detected by a private sector cybersecurity firm. The government didn't even detect it. Right. So it was a third party that detected it, which suggests, you know, these cyber adversaries are very adept. What, what do they detect? Uh, they detected. Well, in this case, it was um, FireEye, which discovered that its own cyber prevention tools had been compromised. And that sort of led them on the breadcrumbs that unraveled that, that led down the trail. Of, so of for, we all, for all we know, there are dozens or hundreds or thousands of, you know, operations in place now that are working where they're picking up our conversations and listening and so on. I mean, it's possible. The question is, you know, what's the intention of an adversary and what's their capability? So I, you know, most adversaries aren't going to get a lot by listening to my phone calls, right? There's no reason for them to really do that. So, you know, everyday Americans are generally not targets of these kinds of things. And then a lot of countries or, or, or organizations that have the intention to do that kind of thing, say non-state actors, don't have the capability to pull that off. Sometimes it takes a really sophisticated operation to penetrate these, not always, but but often it does. So it has to be a marriage of intention and capability for these attacks to, to be pulled off. You know, I, I um, was reading recently about, and you have a, a great chapter about cybersecurity and what is a cyber threat. Is there is there a notion of, you know how like in the 80s there was mutual assured destruction. Nobody was gonna drop a nuclear bomb on anyone because of this idea that if you drop one, then the whole world's gonna get nuked. So it was this mutual assured destruction implicit policy. And I read recently there's something kind of similar with cybersecurity that if we just shut down Russia or China, 
they probably have the capability to do the same thing to us. Like if we just shut the electric grid of China completely down, they could probably do it to us. Do you think our capabilities and their capabilities are that sophisticated? I mean, I, I'm not on the inside to know exactly what our capabilities are, but from what people on the inside have told me, we are the most sophisticated cyber actor in the world. But, and this is what you alluded to, we're also one of the most vulnerable countries in the world. So one of the things that makes cyber so vexing is that power doesn't protect us like it does in physical space, right? So it used to be, if you had bigger armies with better forces, you were more protected from the bad guys. And, and geography protected you too. But in cyberspace, that's not true. We're incredibly powerful in cyberspace, but we're vulnerable because we're so digitally connected. So when North Korea hacked Sony Pictures because of that movie, The Interview, the Seth Rogen comedy, right? It became a national security incident. But when North Korea's internet went down, and it did shortly thereafter, maybe because of something the US did, nothing happened because North Korea only had 28 websites, right? So North Korea is one of the poorest countries in the world. That's why we're much more vulnerable in cyberspace than some of our adversaries are. How do they get good at cybersecurity? Like how could they hack anything in North <laughs> Korea? They, they never leave their country. <laughs> I know. They have remarkable technical capabilities in nuclear weapons, cybersecurity, and stealing cryptocurrency. Go figure. I guess they send some kids abroad for school. They threaten their families if, if the kids don't come back and kids get training, you know, the best of the best get training and then they go back to North Korea. And they're also in the, in the wild west of cyberspace, there are all sorts of guns for hire, right? There are cyber proxies. You can, I mean, there's a whole ecosystem of businesses where you can, um, you know, get people to write you malware and send you what are called zero day vulnerabilities. These are vulnerabilities in code that the developers don't know. You can buy them on the black market. So there is a whole sort of dark commerce system for nefarious activities in cyberspace. And what part of the U.S. intelligence services is trying to monitor those black markets? So there are a number of different parts of our intelligence community that do that. One of the most interesting parts of it is, you know, the National Security Agency is dual-hatted is what it's called. The head of the National Security Agency, which, right, collects foreign uh, signals intelligence, is also the head of United States Cyber Command. That's the military command that's responsible for defending and attacking in cyberspace. So you can see there is a tight connection between our ability to, to gather information and to use it to, to defend ourselves and to wage offensive cyber operations. So they're very attuned to what's going on in cyberspace, but they're not the only ones in the intelligence community doing this kind of, you know, sort of understanding uh, what cyber capabilities there are. I mean, I guess would they would they set up like fake black market companies to and, and see who the customers are, like be legit for a long time, and then when North Korea shows up and says we want to shut down the U.S. electric grid, that's when they jump into action. Potentially, I mean, and, and private companies too can do a lot of things to protect themselves. They can create, um, you know, documents and things that look very attractive that are actually fake um, to lure the bad guys into stealing the wrong stuff. Um, so it's not just defending. You can use deception if you're a private company to protect yourself as well. So there are a number of things that, you know, one of the things about cyberspace is that the government doesn't protect us in the way that we expect the government to protect us in the physical world, right? If we have a break-in in our neighborhood, we call the police. If someone is invading with tanks in our country, we call the military. But who's protecting you and me from cyber attack, from a 
right? Who, who's protecting big companies from cyber attacks? It's not really clear. That's a huge problem that the government's trying to figure out how to work its way through. Wow. And how do you think they'll figure it out? I think what we're seeing in the Biden administration is a move toward uh, having the Department of Homeland Security play a much bigger role. So if you've seen these public service announcements about there's a huge vulnerability in, you know, fill in the blank, you need to patch your Microsoft Office today. That's often coming from an organization called CISA, which is in the Department of Homeland Security. They're working much more closely with the private sector and the public about um, prevention, defense, and response in cybersecurity. But just to give you some sense of, you know, how much room we have to improve, there are, I think, roughly 10 times more people that are um, National Park Service uh, employees protecting our nation's parks than there are people employed in this one agency in the Department of Homeland Security that's trying to protect our uh, companies and people from cyber attacks. So we have yeah, a long way to go. Parks. <laughs> we've got to we got to stop being hacked. <laughs> you know, this relates a little bit like the NSA stuff relates a lot to what Edward Snowden revealed about the NSA. You know, he revealed a lot of people had never even heard of the NSA when Snowden released all his documentation about what the NSA does and and so on. But I have a question about that. Like, I remember when I was a kid, there was this book, The Puzzle Palace. I think it was written in 1977 about the NSA. And it said all the things that Snowden said. Like, why was this all a surprise to people what Snowden released? So I think there are two parts to that. One is that the specifics that Snowden released were about very sensitive, highly classified and relatively new programs after 9-11 that were not publicly known before. So some of what he revealed in terms of the specific programs were both incredibly damaging and surprising to people who weren't read into the programs, who weren't cleared to hear the programs. But the second piece of that is why don't people know about the NSA more generally? The Puzzle Palace is a great book. Um, there have been some other um, terrific books written about the National Security Agency. The agency in general is one of the most secretive of the U.S. intelligence agencies. In fact, the NSA, you, the joke is it stood for no such agency because the government wouldn't even acknowledge it existed for a long huh. time. And I think that came back to bite them after 9-11. They held so much secret that when some of these programs by Edward Snowden were revealed, it generated scandal and controversy. Had the NSA actually said, you know, we want to do some different programs that are looking at transmissions between domestic and foreign terrorists. I think they would have gotten more public support. And I think they wouldn't have been engaged in such a tremendous scandal as they were. What's what's the 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 link between the private sector and the intelligence sector? So I'm, I'm thinking more maybe historically, like in the 50s or 60s, it seems like if you were an executive at a big corporation, and you happen to be, you know, working out of Warsaw or, you know, Vienna or something, there was a decent chance or some chance that you could also be an intelligence official also working for like an RCA or a Raytheon or whoever. Do you think there was a, a big linkage between the private sector and intelligence? I think in some cases we know there was, right? So one of my favorite real life examples from history is this incredible operation called Azorian, which was, um, there was a Soviet nuclear submarine that mysteriously sank in the Pacific. 
And the CIA, it's now been declassified, launched a covert operation to retrieve this sunken submarine and its nuclear secrets, really important in the Cold War, without the Soviet Union knowing it. And how are they going to do this? And so it, it was, it's an incredible story. And one of the people who was played a pivotal role in this operation was Howard Hughes. So a private businessman. And so he was the front. So he had this deep sea mining vessel called the Hughes Glomar Explorer that was in fact not a deep sea mining vessel, but a custom made vessel designed for hauling this Soviet nuclear submarine off the ocean floor which had never been done before. So it's a great example of how a private citizen actually played a really important role in a covert operation. So there, there have always been these sorts of connections between the private sector and the intelligence community. But now what's happened because of technology being so important in the world, companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter and high-tech startups that are generating new discoveries in AI and quantum computing, they have to coordinate more and interact more with the intelligence community because the intelligence community needs their innovations in order to do their jobs better. So they have to have a better working relationship today. Like, how does that work? So does it, let's say the CIA wants some information. Do they call Google and say, Hey, this is what we need. We need to see everything, you know, Putin is Googling today. <laughs> and, uh, does, does, is Google, what, what can, what can Google provide? What does Google provide? Like what information does Google have that, that intelligence agencies don't, obviously they have a lot of information. And then to what extent do they use AI as well to parse through this information? So each agency is different and those relationships are really determined by number one, what are they legally required to provide, right? So some companies don't want to do anything more than the bare legal minimum, depends on the company. And second, what is there, what's the issue involved? So if it's about things like sex trafficking of children, right? A lot easier to get every company to participate in giving information for, to law enforcement to help prevent that. So, but you know, these companies have different incentives and different interests at play. So in the case of Google, for example, they have global markets, they have global customers, they have global investors. They have global employees. So there are reasons why they're not just going to open the doors and say, U.S. government, come on in and take whatever data of ours that you want. They're not going to do that. And they have there are some understandable reasons why they're not going to do that. Imagine if they had to do that for every country in the world, too, right, where China is now saying you need to give us all the information you have on dissidents that have Gmail accounts, for example. So it's a delicate relationship, the cooperative relationship between intelligence agencies and these private sector firms. Some of it's done in public, a lot of it is done quietly and in private. But like, what does Google have? Like, what can someone get from Google if you're an intelligence agency? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, you can you can see it pretty easily if you, you know, search for things that you wanna buy, for example, if you have a birthday coming up and you're, and you're searching for something. What does Google know about you? Google knows a lot about you. Google knows your internet browsing history they know how long you spend on each website. They know what you like to buy, where you shop, what you spend your free time doing, where you get your news, how long you're spending reading silly stories in Us Weekly versus the New York Times or other places. They may know where your phone is, right? Tracking your cell phone location. They may know based on your Google searches that you might be pregnant, right? Which no one else may know, but based on your Google search history, you can piece that together. So all of this, what they call metadata about 
how we use, and I'm just, I'm, we're singling out Google, but other companies have this capability too. All the things that make you attractive to target advertisements to you, that's because of all the data that these companies are trafficking in about your life. Google knows a lot more about me than the National Security Agency does. I can guarantee you that. So, um, and it's amazing how their algorithms pop up things for you based on your search history, right? So, you know, in my case, I, I get a lot of shoe ads, right? How does Google know that they should send me that shoe ad based on my history? So, and in some cases, I have a family member who, after the Capitol riot and insurrection on January the 6th, really wanted to learn what happened and started doing deep dive research on Google about what happened. And by the end of a 24 hour period, he was getting targeted ads for body armor because the algorithms thought he was a right-wing extremist that wanted to protest against his government one day. Wow. So, uh, so let's say, let's say the CIA calls up and say, listen, we think so-and-so is a terrorist. We want to know what you think, Google. Uh, can you give us an update on this person? Does Google know? Does Google respond? I mean, I hate to say it depends, but it does depend. So the it you know, the FBI would be the agency, right, um, that would most likely be contacting Google. And there it would be a it might be a law enforcement approach to the company. Right. So we have reason to believe we have to have you can't just go on a fishing expedition. Give us whatever you have, Google, on Americans who might have said something that is is concerning because that then violates the First Amendment. So it really is very context specific what the ask is, what the laws say Google has to provide and what a company like Google would be willing and able to do. But I feel like I, it's, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, as you mentioned, we have the power now to be our own intelligence agencies, really. Like Google, like you say, knows more about people than intelligence services. So would, would there ever be, and again, Google in quotes, like you said, there could be many other companies, but would there ever be a time when Google proactively says, look, here's our monthly list of who we think are the top 10 candidates to be terrorists. Here it is. Well, I mean, we do see proactive work on the part of private sector companies. So in the case of the 2016 Russian election interference campaign, how do we know that Russians were masquerading as Americans on Facebook? Facebook, right? The U.S. intelligence community didn't detect it. They didn't go to Facebook and say, hey, you've got a problem on your platform. These are Russians based in St. Petersburg on these Facebook accounts, not Americans. Facebook found that information themselves, proactively found it, and brought it to the intelligence community. So it does, I mean, there are instances, and I think, you know, these large companies have more capability to do that kind of work than small companies, um, where they are trying to be proactive about identifying dangerous organizations. I think Facebook does this, YouTube does this, Google does it, not as well as they should, not as well as the nation needs, but they are proactive about it and they do identify, particularly if it's an imminent terrorist threat, identify if there are things that are of great concern for them or Russian interference in an election, for example. And like you said earlier, we don't really know the events that didn't happen because they were stopped. But do you think there was ever a time when one of these big companies were able to stop a major event uh, because they informed intelligence agencies of, of emails they saw going through and, and AI helped them analyze, you know, what were relevant emails and so on? I mean, I really couldn't speculate about whether it's ever happened or not. I wouldn't be surprised if it has. And so, I mean, what when you were when you were writing this, like, what surprised you about 
our intelligence agencies. What, what was interesting to me was their poor ability on forecasting. And you have uh, this section on Philip, Philip Tetlock, who uh, is, is known, well known for his research on people's ability to forecast. It's basically nil without some training. But it turns out that applies not only to people on CNBC, but it also applies to intelligence officials. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, one of that, so you've hit on one of the surprising things, which is how much intelligence failures really stem from basic forecasting weaknesses that all humans have. So the biases we have, you know, um, I was just talking about the, the Super Bowl, right? How am I going to predict the winner? I'm completely biased, right? I'm going to pick the Bengals to win because I have optimism bias that the Bengals are going to win. Are you from Cincinnati? I mean, I grew up in Kentucky. So the closest okay. NFL team was the Bengals and I, and I would go to some of the games. But optimism bias affects intelligence officials too. One of the things that I, one of my sort of favorite biases that I find fascinating is something called the availability bias. You probably know this well. And this is that we tend to think things that we can frequently, that we can remember really well are more likely to happen in the future. So why are Americans so freaked out about shark attacks, even though you're more likely to die by a car accident, 60,000 times more likely to die by car accident than shark attack? Because the media is obsessed with shark attacks. And so we can easily remember a story about shark attacks. So we mistake the probability of a shark attack in the future based on our ability to remember it. This kind of thing affects intelligence analysis a lot too. So I'll give you an example, a concrete example. In the hunt for bin Laden, there's this famous meeting of intelligence officials and President Obama. And he goes around the room and he says, we have this intelligence that there's this guy called the Pacer in a compound in Pakistan. What do you think the odds are that the Pacer, right? They have no DNA evidence. They have no physical sighting of him. What do you think the odds are that it's bin Laden? And he goes around the room. And the estimates range from 40% that it's bin Laden to 95% that it's bin Laden. These are all smart people. They've all read the exact same intelligence information, but the range went from 40 to 95%. Why? Availability bias, right? So they were couching their probability estimates, 40% or 95%, based on their recent experience. People who had more recently come off intelligence counterterrorism successes tended to have a higher estimate that they were going to be right with bin Laden. People who had lived through Iraq WMD and the intelligence failure that that constituted were at the lower end of that spectrum of probability estimates. So I, so we live, we are all human and we have human mistakes in our brain wiring and that affects intelligence analysis too. So as these technological, We've been veering this discussion more and more into the technology because it seems like human operations, while they're kind of the stuff of which movies are made, what's happening now, like you say, we're at war right now because of cyber attacks and cybersecurity and so on. A lot more of this is heading into technology as well as satellite imagery and 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 the sophistication of that and, and AI and its ability to analyze like trillions of bits of data that in ways that humans can't. So the future seems scary because you can't really stop this you know let's say some little let's say russia can shut down our electric grid if they want now it'll soon be the case that every school kid will probably be able to shut down our electric kid you know from all around the world and maybe yes maybe no but some cataclysmic event 
could potentially be done by someone relatively irrelevant just because of advances in technology and how these advances are not distributed evenly. Like an advance could happen in China that doesn't happen here. And so they'll be capable of doing something that we're not even aware of. Like, to what extent are we just doomed right now? <laughs> well, well, I try to be optimistic. I think that you know, with all technology, there's promise in new technology and there's peril in new technology. That's always been the case, right? So cars transformed our economy. They also enabled new kinds of theft, right? Armed robbery with cars that are getaway cars gave rise to the FBI, right? So there's always a, a dark side and a positive side to any new technology. When you think about AI, for example, Imagine the medical breakthroughs we could have with artificial intelligence being able to develop, for example, a new antibiotic, which happened just a few years ago, faster and better than humans could. Um, being able to piece together different parts of data so that you know early whether you have a fatal disease that you would never have known before because of these micro pieces of data that together actually are really good indicators. So I think there's real promise for breakthroughs in health, um, breakthroughs in productivity, in um, sort of the human condition, our economy, our global economy. But there is a dark side to AI as well. And when I think about what that dark side is, I'm really worried about crisis management. So think about crises that we've lived through in our lives and how hard it is for humans to manage them when they know the other side is a human. Now imagine that the other side is using AI to help them make decisions that we won't anticipate. That's when things start to get really hairy and crises can spiral out of control. So we nearly went to nuclear war in 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that was Kennedy talking to Khrushchev without AI. Now imagine machines have a greater role in this kind of decision-making and automatic firing and all, and all the rest of it. It makes crisis management much more fraught, I think, than it has in the past. So I, you know, I, I um, catastrophize for a living. That's kind of, I, I think about scary things all day. But at the end of the day, I think technology can help get us out of the problems that it's also getting us into. Right. But I always, I, I remember visiting a cybersecurity once uh, about a decade ago, and they were trying to prevent uh, bot armies from invading corporations. They would, they were, would set up software for corporations so they wouldn't get, you know, invaded by these bot armies coming from other countries or other companies or whatever. And one thing they said to me was, is that the bad guys are always going to be better than us, <laughs> you know, because they're, it's, it's one thing, it, you know, people say the best defense is a good offense, but the people who are truly offensive are probably better at offense than we are. <laughs> We're just well, trying to defend mostly. Well, I I agree. And, you know, there's the old saying, right, the bad guys only have to be successful once. We have to be successful every time when you're playing defense. So I think you got to change the game. When offense has the, you know, is favored, you have to change the game you're in. And the way you change the game is, yes, you have to defend as well as you can, but you have to be able to be resilient. So even if they get through, are they going to steal the crown jewels that you have in your company or your organization or your agency? And even if they do that or they take down the grid, do we have backup systems that aren't connected to those primary systems so that we can rebound and recover more quickly and ably than we could before? So resilience is about bouncing back after an attack, not preventing every attack from getting through. And I think we have to have a different mindset about um, how to think about um, our cyber effective, effectiveness in cyber attacks. The bad guys will get through. 
The question is, how do you operate while you're infected? How do you operate after you've been attacked? And how do you recover quickly? And, you know, you mentioned this new agency that's set up with just with the, the geospatial imagery. So satellites are an important part of this now, too. Like satellites could practically see right into your home. Like, what's the future of that? So the satellite revolution is amazing. So it used to be in the Cold War that really only superpowers could launch billion dollar spy satellites, and they were about the size of a bus. Now you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars and satellites are the size of a loaf of bread. And so what does that mean? Well, the new capabilities with commercial satellites really come into sort of four different buckets. One is there are more of them. And if there are more satellites, it means they can fly around orbit faster every day. So you can get um, revisit rates over the same territory multiple times a day. So if I want to know, I think there's a terrorist training camp right somewhere in Syria, I can get almost a moving picture in the course of a day because the satellites are flying over it so frequently. So think instead of one snapshot every few weeks, I get a moving picture in the course of 24 hours. So frequency, big difference with commercial satellites today, which gives you a dynamic view of changes in the world, including like climate change, for example. The, the second um, uh, real advantage is resolution. So you mentioned, you know, you can see stuff like very small items. Now there's a commercial satellite that offers resolution so sharp, you can see the signs on the runways of an airport from space, right? That's incredible, right? You can detect different types of cars from space. So resolution is a really um, vast improvement over what it was even 15 years ago. And then there's something, I'm gonna get a little geeky here for a minute, cause I've just been learning about this stuff, is you know what's the sort of spectrum? So we talked about what you can see, like what's a picture, but there's also infrared and there are radio frequencies that give you visibility into all sorts of other things that people are trying to keep secret that are now visible because you can detect them from space. So, I mean, we know infrared from the movies, right? So you have your, you know, your infrared signatures. So even if it's not in the visible spectrum, satellites can detect all sorts of things from space and put this all together. And you have this sort of treasure trove of new data that anybody can use. Yeah. And it's, and again, it seems like not only the intelligence agencies could use a lot of this data, but anybody can. Some of this data is very publicly available. And, and you do see, like, I don't know if you're familiar with a company like Stratfor, for instance, you do see these like companies that are set up to be almost like mini, you know, commercial intelligence agencies that people can subscribe to, to see what's going on in the world and how accurate or even better are those companies? I mean, it feels like there's entrepreneurial opportunities right now in the intelligence space with so much data available. There are huge opportunities in this space. And you know, again, it's classified, but what I, from what I understand that spy satellites still have greater capability than commercial satellites, but that gap is really narrowing. And so you have a number of companies that are producing not just the raw data, but analysis of that data. So, you know, the National Reconnaissance Office is paying hundreds of millions of dollars a year for information coming from commercial satellite companies. And so I think there's a recognition that the government doesn't have to do it alone and can't do it alone. And there are all these other companies out there that are gathering data that can be incredibly useful. Here's another example that recently came to light. So a few months ago, there was a, a story in the Washington Post 
uh, and it's been carried elsewhere about the discovery of hundreds of Chinese nuclear missile silos, previously unknown or at least unacknowledged by the Chinese. How were they discovered? Non-governmental researchers using commercially available technology, open source intelligence, revealing the existence of these of these uh, ICBM silos. What did they do to identify them? So looking at patterns, I mean, one of the things is, you know, government organizations have standard operating procedures, which means that silos are usually built in the same way, right? Because there are efficiencies if your silo always has the same kind of fencing around it or has the same kind of uh, land leveling or has the same kind of design. And so because government organizations, like all organizations, like to do things in standard operating ways, you can hunt for things like that. So there are signatures that you look for. What does a silo field look like? Well, there are other silo fields that were known. So um, when there was commercial satellite imagery over particular areas of China, it was detected by people who spend a lot of time. They're, they're pretty avid, these nuclear detectives, uh, looking for evidence of, is there something new going on here? And they found it. And and I guess related to this, what, what do you see as the role of crypto and intelligence agencies. Like right now, it seems like, let's say you used to pay off warlords with cash. Now, and you'd have to carry that cash to whatever country you're paying people off. Now you could just transfer crypto and nobody knows about it because of the privacy aspects of cryptocurrencies. So crypto works both for the good guys and the bad guys, right? So it's not a surprise North Korea likes cryptocurrency a lot too. Uh, they like to steal it. They like to use it. Um, a lot of bad guys like cryptocurrencies, not just good guy investors. So it works both ways. Um, and, and we've seen also recently with Colonial Pipeline that just because someone's using cryptocurrency doesn't mean that they're totally anonymous. There are points in the process where others can figure out who you are. Right. When you convert that crypto to real money, there's a possibility for others to find out who you are. So it's not as fail safe as people think it is in hiding their identity. Right. But it's it's probably a good way, though. It's probably better than cash, though. It's probably uh, better than cash. You're right. Just because it's uh, it probably easier to transfer and it is a little bit more private. Like if someone brings in $10 million of cash to a bank, that's going to be a news event. Whereas crypto <laughs> right. never has to go into a bank. It could just stay, you know, now, now some of these decentralized exchanges are giving you credit cards. So it never has to go into the, the mainstream system really. Right. And you're not going to trip any wires by depositing a million dollars in cash in your bank account. Right. Right. So, so I wonder how, to what extent like the, the CIA and these, you know, outward facing agencies, you know, uh, are, are using cryptos at this point. It's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I'll have to, I'll have to research that for my next book. Yeah, that would be a good book because, <laughs> I, again, I've had some agency, former agency members allude to the fact that maybe crypto is being used quite a bit, uh, you know, in order to make payments or transfer money or whatever. Uh, so, so look, uh, Amy Ziegert, such, such an interesting book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. I would say the last book that gave me so much information about you know, American intelligence was the Puzzle Palace, which was written in 1977. <laughs> so I learned all about the NSA. I was like a 10-year-old kid. But now I feel I have a much better understanding of what's actually going on in America in the intelligence industry. And thank you for answering all my kind of just dumb, naive questions. They and were awesome <laughs> questions. And it's such a delight to be on your podcast. 
Well, well, thanks, Amy. And, and you're welcome back anytime. Come back on uh, for the next book on crypto and intelligence agencies. <laughs> or, or we didn't even talk quantum computing and intelligence agencies. But the reason we didn't is because I don't believe that's in the near future. Do you get there a sense that do you get a sense that quantum computing is something that is going to be used in the near future? Depends on how you define near future, right? So I think it's certainly an over the horizon capability. Um, I think not in the next couple of years, but if it does become reality, it means that our data and our encryption can be broken. So the consequences could be pretty serious. Yeah, and what, what I, I think about this a lot because on the one hand, you know, like like with all technology, it doesn't happen in just one place in the world. It kind of happens by accident in many places in the world, like how calculus was discovered at the same time unknowingly by both Newton and Leibniz and, and so on. But if somebody is even just a, a second ahead of somebody else in quantum computing, that's game over for the banking system, for instance. Right, that's true. Um, this, and I think you've hit on such a crucial difference today compared to the past, which is speed. Whoever gets these innovations faster is going to gain the advantage. And and speed is not years. Speed could be months. Speed could be milliseconds. Yeah. Well, on that note of optimism, okay. We got We got <laughs> You're an optimist. We have to end on a note of optimism. What's your optimistic conclusion from all of this? My optimistic conclusion is that I think it's never been a more exciting time to be involved in national security. And I'm teaching this class based on the book at Stanford in the spring. And I can't tell you how exciting it is to see all of these bright students wanting to learn about intelligence, wanting to learn about national security and wanting some part of their life, whatever they do, whether it's in uh, the private sector, in the public sector, to look at how to make the world more peaceful and better. So my students always give me optimism. And so I wrote this textbook as a textbook to teach at Stanford. And I'm really excited to get in the classroom with it in the spring. Well, this didn't, this did not read like a textbook. So I'm, I'm very impressed, but, uh, uh, okay. Here's the last dumb question. And the, the last question, if you were to work, clearly you're interested in the intelligence agency industry. If you were to work for an intelligence agency, which one would you work for and what would you do? Well, wow, you're going to make me a lot of enemies at 17 agencies in the U.S. intelligence community, but hands That's my down, because I'm trying to recruit you for North Korean intelligence. <laughs> hands down, I'd say the Central Intelligence Agency. Why is that? Because the Central Intelligence Agency is an is the premier all source analysis agency. They bring it all together. They have the hardest challenge of preventing strategic surprise. So if you're going to be in the analysis business, and that's what I do for a living, I want to be on the toughest problems. And I think the agency has had a lot of uh, a lot of difficult challenges. They've gotten a lot wrong, but I've been so impressed by the people I've met there and the dedication they have to what they do. All right. Well, Amy Siegert, hopefully your dreams come true. Maybe you're already <laughs> working for the CIA. I don't know. So Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence by Amy Ziegert. 